This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Amara, Emerson, Emmeline, Susanna, and Sam VR. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, We'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. We have questions from Amara and Emerson, and they both have to do with sin and God's reaction to it. First, here's Amara's question. She asks, When God created the world, he knew we would sin. So why did he let us sin? I love this question, though it's not an easy question to answer. If God knows everything in advance, then why didn't he stop sin from happening? I'm going to tell you the usual answer that people give for this question and where I think that answer falls short. And then I'll tell you what I believe is the right answer, though the right answer doesn't explain everything. So we'll start with the usual explanation. The usual explanation that people give is human free will. God wanted us to be free, so he had to give us the power to choose sin, even though that's not what he wanted. He knew it would happen, but he was so committed to the idea of human freedom that he let sin happen anyway. Now, there is some basis for the free will defense. Chapter 9 of the Westminster Confession is all about free will, and it teaches that God did indeed give Adam and Eve that freedom. Now, interestingly, the Confession doesn't say that they had the freedom to choose good or evil, but rather the Confession puts it this way, they had the power to will and to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God, but they were changeable, so it was possible for them to fall from that state of innocence. Now, the reason the confession is so precise about this is that in the Bible, sin is never seen as freedom. Sin is bondage. So the Bible doesn't say people were free to sin. Rather, they were free to choose what was good, but they had the ability to fall from that freedom. Regardless, I don't think that the free will explanation really answers the question. You wouldn't excuse a father who let his baby crawl in the street because he said he wanted to give the child freedom and couldn't bring himself to violate that freedom even though he knew a car was coming. We just call that father irresponsible. There's such a gap between the father's understanding and the understanding of the child that treating the child that way doesn't really make sense. So what's a better explanation? The better explanation is this, that God permits the fall for his glory. The reason he creates human beings, even though he knows we will fall, and the reason that he doesn't stop that fall from happening, is that through all these things, God intends to glorify himself, to demonstrate his great love, his mercy, his justice. After all, that's the reason that Job suffers. In the book of Job, God volunteers Job for suffering in order to test his faithfulness so that God himself will be glorified by Job's perseverance in the midst of suffering. 
And I think there's a similar logic at work when it comes to the fall into sin. But like I said, I know this doesn't explain everything. Until we see God face to face, there may be no full explanation. But for now, focusing on God's glory at least explains what we can explain. And now Emerson asks, why didn't God just get rid of sin? I think God would answer this question and say, wait a second, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm getting rid of sin. After all, from Genesis 3.15, which is the first hint of the gospel, all the way through to the coming of Christ to die on the cross, and, and even to this day when the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, all of this is what it takes to get rid of sin. I realize that when we ask this question, though, what we mean is something more like, why couldn't God just speak sin out of existence or snap his fingers after the fall and just make it go away? But we have to stop and think about what it takes to get rid of sin, all the work that is necessary to undo sin. Actually, it takes a lot. For example, the law of righteousness needs to be kept so that human beings can enter into the life that was intended for them. And a human being needs to do that work. Second, all the damage of sin needs to be undone, and that takes sacrifice and suffering. And again, a human being needs to do that. So sin is an offense against divine justice, and that justice has to be satisfied. And yes, since it's humanity that is offended, a human being needs to do this. You might look at it this way. When Adam sinned, he was acting not just for himself, but for all of us. So to get rid of sin, we need another human being, another Adam, basically, to reverse sin on our behalf. That's what was required. And that's exactly what God is doing. God sent his son Jesus into the world to become that second Adam, that human being that we needed to do all this work. And Jesus lived righteously so that his perfect life could be counted to us. He suffered to pay the price of sin and to make up for the offense to justice. And now the Holy Spirit applies all of Jesus' work to our hearts. One day Jesus will come again and bring the whole work of salvation to completion. So God didn't snap his fingers and get rid of sin all at once. And that tells us something about how terrible sin is, how big a problem sin is. The good news is, even though sin was much harder to get rid of, God did everything it takes by sending Jesus. And when we have faith in him, our sins are forgiven. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this time from Emmelyn. So let's give her a round of applause. Here's Emmelyn's question. Why is it that in the Bible, everyone believed the prophecies? Today, if someone said they'd had a vision like Zechariah's, I probably wouldn't have believed them at first. You know what, Emmelyn? I'm in the same boat. There are a lot of things that we accept as from God because we read them in the Bible. But if they happen to us in real life, we might not be so quick to see it that way. For example, consider the case of Abraham. 
If someone you knew told you, hey, I heard a voice from heaven telling me to take my little kid out into the countryside and sacrifice him on an altar, would you say, oh, cool, that sounds like God? Or would you say, hey, I think you might need to see a doctor. If you're hearing voices, then there's definitely something wrong with you. I think most of us in the real world would take that latter approach. It's only when we're reading the book of Genesis that we view everything so piously. So the question is, why were people back then so quick to accept these things when we would really struggle with them? Okay, now some people would say, it's easy. People back then were just superstitious. They already believed in a lot of crazy stuff, so this might have seemed plausible to them. Now we know better. To be honest with you, though, that's not actually a very good answer because the fact is people in the ancient world were not all that different from us. Sure, they had wrong beliefs about the world and didn't realize it, but hey, we have wrong beliefs about the world too and we don't realize it either. People are people, and we're not better than they were. We may know a little bit more about things, but essentially, we operate in very similar ways. Also, if you read the Bible carefully, you'll discover something that's really interesting related to this question. People in the Bible didn't always believe the word of the prophets. In fact, it seems like they mostly didn't believe. Look at Moses, for example. Even though God was clearly speaking through Moses and the people were witnessing miraculous signs and wonders, throughout the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, you see the very same people rebelling against Moses, grumbling against him, disobeying, doubting, all of that stuff. It's not like whatever Moses said, the people just accepted. The great prophet Elijah is another example. Elijah heard from God. He spoke the word of God. He performed miraculous deeds. And yet, for most of the time, he was a hunted man. You mentioned Zechariah. Well, Zechariah was probably murdered by the people, assuming he's the same Zechariah that Jesus refers to as having been killed in the temple. In fact, Jesus says, that the people of old were guilty of shedding the blood of the prophets. So far from believing all of the things that we would have so much difficulty accepting, they actually seem to have had just as much difficulty as us. Now, it may be that in the days of Israel, because the pattern of prophecy had been established, that there were at least some people who were more receptive, who were expecting God to reveal himself in this way. But as you can see reading the scriptures, for the most part, it wasn't all that different than what you can imagine happening now. The question isn't why did people believe back then when we'd have a harder time today. I think the question is, why does anyone believe at all? Why would any of us accept the idea that a prophet or a priest or an apostle has received revelation from God? The Westminster Confession has an interesting way of answering this question. You'll find this in the very first chapter of the Confession. It's talking about the authority of Scripture, which is relevant here because the prophets always speak the Word of God, which ultimately is what the Bible contains. So why do we believe the Bible is God's Word? 
The Confession says the authority of Scripture rests not on the testimony of man, but on the testimony of God. It isn't that we are convinced because we judge the Scripture's merits and then we accept them, even though there's plenty of merit in Scripture, but rather the Confession says our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of Scripture is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. We believe, in other words, because the Spirit testifies within us. And I think what's true of us now was true of them too. What's true of Scripture today was true of prophecy in the days before us. People rejected the prophets out of the hardness of their hearts. And when they listened, it was because the Spirit softened them. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Susanna. She asks, what is a more church-like environment, a rock band or a calm and quiet singing? Susanna, I was at a church service once sitting right in the front row and there was a band on stage with an electric guitar player. He had his amp right in front of me and it was turned way up. Let me tell you, I didn't feel very worshipful in that situation. I was just waiting for it to be over. Now, that's not to say that God approves of some musical styles and not others, or even that it's always better to be quiet than to be loud. There's a place for all sorts of music and for both loudness and quietness. I will say, though, that for people today, loudness comes much easier than quietness does. We struggle with silence and stillness. We like things to be loud and busy because it's easier to pay attention, because we can focus on what's going on around us instead of on on what's going on inside of us. When it comes to worship, we work hard to create those places for silence and stillness because human beings need them and they're hard to come by. So in church, You should never feel like you're an audience member watching a performance. But that's not a question of musical style. It's a question more of musical delivery. Now, if I had to choose as a pastor what environment is more conducive to worship, I would go with the calm and the quiet because it lends itself to worship in a special way. And that kind of environment is so rare for us these days. But having said that, there's a place for everything. So let's not get locked into thinking one style is always wrong and the other is always right. Our last question comes from Sam VR, who asks, what would have happened if Eve and Adam cut down and burned the tree before Satan tempted them? Well, we've been talking about sin and God's response to it in this episode, so I really love this question from Sam, and honestly, I don't think I've ever considered this problem before. But uh, giving it a little bit of thought, I'm going to say this. The trees in the garden were there for a reason. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't there for humans to eat from, but it did have a purpose, just like the tree of life. The Bible doesn't explain why God placed the trees there, But since he did it, we can be certain that there was a good reason. So if Adam and Eve had chopped one down and burned it, I don't think that would have avoided the problem of sin. I think that in and of itself would have been a sin. 
Now, as I think about this, uh, there's something worth thinking about. Uh, The life of obedience that Adam was called to had to be lived in the presence of that tree. He was supposed to keep the commandment, even though the tree was right there and eating from it would have been easy. Now, in life, we often tell ourselves that the way to avoid sin is to destroy the things that could lead us to sin. The problem is the human heart can fashion anything into an idol. If you set out to destroy everything that could lead you to stumble, the destruction will never end. That's why it's such a relief to be able to receive and rest on Christ's obedience. He was faithful in the presence of every temptation and turned the tree that he was crucified on into a sign of our forgiveness. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.